Well, welcome to another lesson here in Module 1 as we talk about the major gospel doctrines. And I'm spending a lot of time talking about who is God, the part of it that we call the theolo theology, the study of God. And of course it overlaps because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll get to the Trinity and the triune God. I've been saying that and we will. But I have been honing in on this truth that is so unusual because uh, many are not paying much attention to it, that God is just like Jesus and that Jesus shows us God, that Jesus is not merely one or the top one among the messengers. You know, the prophets came, the judges, the kings, and then Jesus, of course, is greater than them. But, but that Jesus is the total illumination of who God is. And when you are commissioned into your ministry, that ministry is to illuminate people. Illuminate one person, illuminate multitudes uh, to the reality of who God is. It's called an awakening. People will awaken to the reality of who God is. And so we're going we're gonna to drill a little deeper in this. And we're going to go to uh, Luke chapter 15. So follow along in your Bible because a lot of the things, um, Scripture verses, are not in your notes. We just kind of use the, the syllabus there that you have, your study manual and the Bible and hand in hand. And so, uh, uh, but, but the opening part is there. So I'm going to read this from the Amplified where it says, Now the tax collectors and notorious and especially wicked sinners we're all coming near to Jesus and to listen to him. That's, that's worth observing. Is that happening today? Are notorious and wicked sinners being drawn to church? Do they want to come and hear what preachers, what we are saying? I, I hope that's the case because that, that is indicative of the ministry of Jesus. And remember, you are a follower of Jesus. You are pursuing the ministry of Jesus. And so uh, people should be drawn to you. And if they are not, what is it about us that repel people? Then he says, and the Pharisees and the scribes kept muttering and indignantly complaining, saying, this man accepts and receives and welcomes preeminently wicked sinners and eats with them. Now, sometimes, and we're going to look at the entire chapter 15 here, sometimes erroneously people have presumed that Luke chapter 15 is um, a, a teaching or a chapter written to provide material for us uh, to present God's love for the down and outers. Uh, because it's a story of the lost son and the lost coin and the lost sheep. And we think, well, um, the, the, those are good stories to talk about when you're reaching out to people on the streets, when you're reaching out to people who've been, who've been hurt uh, by life and they are uh, facing a lot of uh, uh, maybe addictions or other problems. But, but mark this, Luke 15, in its original was not spoken to down and outers. It was a teaching for leaders. Do you aspire to be a leader? Well, then pay very close attention to Luke 15, because Jesus is addressing the elite, 
the top echelon of leaders within the Jewish religion. And so with that in mind, before we go any further, look at the players, look at what's going on here. There's a contrast in views about who God is. On the one side, you have the Pharisees, and they have a contractual view of God. You know, a contract is an agreement between two parties, and the contract is dependent on each party fulfilling their obligation. You may be familiar with a rental contract of some form. Maybe you've rented a place to live, and so you have to pay first and last month's rent. You have to uh, observe certain rules for the premises, whether you can bring friends or not, what you can cook, and what, what you can do, maybe certain rules like that. And then you have to pay a certain amount of money, and for that, uh, then, then the, the landlord will provide certain privileges to you. But if either party breaks the contract, that's why we sign them. People have signed contracts because there's a legal obligation. You may have a very friendly signing of a contract, shaking hands, smiling, but make no mistake, when you sign that contract, ultimately there is a possibility that the other party would take you to court over breach of contract. So a contract is always two, uh, not necessarily equal parties, but two parties taking on a task that they deem themselves able to perform. Now, this is the view that the Pharisees had of God, that God was a contractual God, that God was saying, um, I, I will love you, but for me to love you, you have to uh, fulfill the certain criteria. And, and, and I want to bless you, but for you to receive that blessing, there's a certain criteria that you must fulfill. And, and let's not just leave this 2,000 years ago. This is a very prevalent way of thinking today, that there are many who spend uh, they, they even say, they take the Bible in their hand and say, oh, this is God, this is our contract with God. And, and they treat the Bible as if, if, if you will do certain things, God will bless you. And, and to be fair, the old covenant, and you'll later on pick up this thread of the old versus the new covenant. So the old covenant does espouse this. If you are faithful, if you are obedient, you will eat of the good of the land. And, and so there's a lot up to you. It's like if, if you do it right, then God will come through on your behalf. So this was the idea that the Pharisees had. And this is the idea that much religion still has about God, including in the evangelical religion, which many of you are associated with, that, that if, if, if you move towards God, God will move towards you. If you love, God will love you back. If you give, God will give you back. So it all starts with us doing something that God approves us, and then He will bless us. But, but Jesus came with a completely different view of God. We call this a covenantal view of God. He, he, he described God as a God of the covenant, and, and, and a covenant in the context of God is God taking everything He is, everything God has, and crediting that to someone else's account. And so when God made a covenant with Abraham, 
he, he took everything he is. He swore by himself because he couldn't swear by anybody greater. And he was saying, I'm going to keep my covenant. Later on in the New Testament, it says, even if we are faithless, God is faithful. So God says, I'm going to stick to my covenant. So a covenant is something vastly greater than a contract. And the new covenant that we are presenting to the world is that God has taken who he is, everything he has, and put that into Jesus, and through Jesus made that available to everyone. I want you to see the personalities, so the main players mentioned here. First of all, we have the tax collectors. Now, it may not sound so serious to be a tax collector. It's just someone working for the government to collect the taxes. But in the context of the Bible, it's very important when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that you know who the tax collectors are because you, you see them popping up all through the story. So who, who are these people? Why, why are they single out? They collected revenue on behalf of the government. Well, these people were deeply unpopular. First of all, they were working for the occupying force, the Roman Empire. So they had kind of, they were Jewish people who had sold themselves to the other side, to the occupiers. Uh, to, to the oppressors, if you wish, because the Romans didn't want to collect their own taxes. There would be constant, you know, attention if, if they would go to the people that they had occupied. So, uh, so they would rather hire someone to do it. Now, these tax collectors were Jewish people then who were working for the Romans, but to make matters worse, they were known to skim. So, so they, would, uh, they would not only charge the taxes that Rome legally required, but they would add to it and so tax collectors, if you wish, in today's vernacular, they were driving the nicest cars, living in the nicest neighborhoods, and they took the, the best vacations, and they stayed in the best hotels, and, and everybody knew that they were doing this skimming. In other words, off the back of their fellow Jewish citizens. So they were, you know, a tax collector. It doesn't sound so... Think of the worst kind of person. Think of the worst kind of sinner you can imagine. I mean, who is despised in the society where you live? What kind of a crime would be really considered despicable? Well, whatever it is, because I'm speaking to people all over the world, so it may be different, different things. But whatever, whatever came to your mind, that's a tax collector. They were the worst of the worst. So, so, so think about that. And, and, and then there were sinners. It says there were tax collectors and sinners. And that sinners was basically anybody who, who didn't live up to the requirements that the Pharisees had set for those who attended the synagogue. Then you had the Pharisees themselves. And uh, they, they were a holiness movement that had begun to emerge about 200 years before Christ. And they were at their climax at the time Jesus came. And they had developed uh, rules based on the Torah. And they had added to it. And they had uh, large commentaries. And they were adding more and more burdens on people. And, and they were, of course, in, in deep conflict with the tax collectors. Uh, some historians um, allege that if a Pharisee in a, even inadvertently uh, ran into a tax collector. Uh, maybe in the marketplace they accidentally bumped him to one another, which can happen, as you know, that they, then they would have to go home and wash their clothes because uh, somehow that dirty, filthy sin 
of the tax collectors. It was rubbing off on them. It's a strange thing, you know. <laughs> Still many people feel like that today. They, they didn't think that their righteousness would rub off on the tax collector, but they thought it, you know, everything was going the other way. The sin would rub off on them. So, uh, so, so, uh, so, so we see the Pharisees through the eyes of Jesus. You know, the word Pharisee today has a very negative connotation. But let's go back to biblical times. There was nothing negative about them. They were, they were adored. These were the holy people, people would, you would pay respect. You might kiss their hand if they walked by. You, you, these were wonderful, holy, committed people, committed to a life of purity and sanctity and to teach others how to live holy and sanctified. But it's only because we see them through the eyes of Jesus that they have this negative connotation because Jesus saw through them. He saw beyond their outward appearance. You know, there's entire chapters in the Bible about this, and he says, uh, on the outside, you're all washed and scrubbed clean, but inside, you're rotten. You know, it's like when you, maybe you ever gone to a grocery store and you bought an apple, and, and then it looks so beautiful, maybe red or green, or it was, looks like it was almost shining in the grocery store, and then you took it home and took a bite into it, and there was this brown, mushy substance in the middle, and you say, well, then this apple is not what it, what it, what it looked like. So, so that's how Jesus described the Pharisees. And, and then, of course, you have one other group. You have Jesus there, but then you have the disciples. They are kind of there, kind of the onlookers <laughs> watching this drama. And, 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 and the scribes were those who transcribed the Scriptures. So, so they often were put together with scribes and Pharisees. And so here they were, and Jesus was, as we read, he was eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners and the especially wicked sinners, it says here. So it doesn't say he was preaching to them. It doesn't say he was rebuking them for their ungodliness. It doesn't say that he was correcting them. It says he was eating and drinking. And eating and drinking, you know, in, in the biblical context, it, it's not like today you might go through a fast food restaurant and pick something up and eat it in the car. Eating and drinking in the, in the Middle Eastern setting is always about fellowship, about coming together. You know, you go today, I've had the, the opportunity sometimes when the time was no restraint to go into a restaurant. I mean, I didn't know the people, the owner, and, and they would bring me different salads. Even before I ordered, they will bring me bread and salad, and we'll talk, and then we'll order something, and it could take several hours of just uh, just sharing. So eating and drinking, forget your fast food hamburger or, 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 or whatever you buy, chicken fast food. We're talking about Jesus is fellowship and he's spending time with them and they are comfortable to spend time with him and he with them. And of course, this would immediately cause them to think, what, what kind of a prophet is Jesus? What kind, of, what kind of a prophet is Jesus? Doesn't he know? who he's talking with and fellowshipping with? Why is he spending time with them? Similar to what many would think today. So their complaint was, uh, let, let's just read it again. The complaint was, and, and I would underline this in your notes, this man, Jesus, accepts and receives and welcomes preeminently wicked sinners and he eats with them. 
you know, that is actually, now from the Pharisees' point of view, that was a terrible, indignant statement that he would do that. Look at him. He receives and welcomes wicked sinners and eats with them. But to me, this is the good news. This was not an aberration in Jesus' activity. This was not something he just took a couple hours to do. This is his ministry. This was not a part of it. This is it. He receives, never forget this, he receives and welcomes preeminently wicked sinners and eats with them. <laughs> and so this was uh, the setup. You have on the, in the one corner, you have the scribes and the Pharisees. In the other corner, you have Jesus. You have the crowd looking on, being the wicked sinners and the disciples. And now this is, it comes to a clash and a debate and, and a discussion. And Jesus now defends. what he, Remember, God is just like Jesus. Jesus shows us God. So now Jesus is about to speak to this religious elite and explain to them why he is talking with and spending time with wicked sinners. Okay, so let's, let's get to that now. Okay. Yeah. So he said, verse 3, he spoke this parable to them, to the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, and he said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who quote-unquote, need no repentance. And so here, here, here we have something so beautiful. Uh, stay with me on this here now. First of all, notice there's no time limitation. Jesus is saying, you want to know what God is like? God is like a shepherd that when one sheep is gone, he seeks until he finds it. He, he doesn't say he seeks until, you know, there's no more time to seek. He doesn't say he seeks uh, as, as long as he has strength to seek. He says he seeks until he finds it. No time limitation. Then notice that when he finds the sheep here, there's no scolding, you dumb sheep. How stupid could you be wandering away from there? No scolding. Sometimes religion believes that we will win people by scolding them, telling them off, threatening them. No. What Jesus says here is the shepherd takes the sheep and puts it on his shoulders. This is very, very beautiful. So he doesn't say, well, you walked yourself into trouble. Now you're going to walk yourself out of trouble. No, he's saying, you walked yourself into trouble and I'm going to carry you out of the trouble. See, it's, it's, this is so important. I'm preparing you for your ministry. How will you talk to people? How will you communicate to people? 
how will you present the gospel? Will you present the gospel? Well, you got yourself into the mess you're in, and by God, you're going to have to walk out of it yourself, and God will be there somehow a little bit in the distance, uh, you, you know, helping you out as you call on Him. Or are you going to say, no, salvation is that Jesus puts you on His shoulders. Because you see, once that happens, the sheep and the shepherd are one. You could say that there were footsteps of the sheep walking away into that desert, into that wilderness, and then there were the footsteps of the shepherd pursuing the sheep. But coming out of the wilderness, you don't have any footsteps of the sheep. You only have the shepherd because they become one. And in a sense, this is a beautiful thing. As I'm now, now we, we're fine-tuning our skills to present the gospel here. In, in a sense, this is a picture of the first Adam and the last Adam. The sheep that walked away is the first Adam. He walked into that lost wilderness, and Jesus, the last Adam, walked after him. But coming out of the wilderness, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. In Christ, in Him, Christ in you, you have this, in a hundred places in the New Testament, this idea that we are identified with Christ. You find that here in the story of, of the great shepherd. Oh, you could really, you could really develop this. And then, then it says, He brings the sheep back and calls the friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice! Now, friends and neighbors is an expression you'll find. And now, in the church where I come from, we used to call everybody brother and sister. Here's brother so-and-so. Here's sister so-and-so. It's not as common today, but that's how I was raised. Everybody was a brother and sister. And if you were not a part of that church, if you walked in, you may have thought everybody was literally physically related. But it was a nice spiritual term of endearment, showing that we were a spiritual family. Well, the term friends and neighbors is just the same thing. Jesus is saying, well, the shepherd gathers his friends and neighbors, and they rejoice. It's a little, he, he's poking a little bit at the Pharisees. He says, Pharisees, if you were true friends and neighbors, if you weren't so stuck up in your religion, if you were true friends and neighbors, you would rejoice when someone who has been lost someone who's wandered astray, somebody who made a mess of things, when that person comes back, you would be happy. But they were not. They were indignant. They were mad. He's, he's, he's poking them a little bit. And one other thing I want you to, to, to notice here, there's no indication that the sheep was aware of its own treacherous situation. There's no, there's no indication that the sheep said, help, help, I'm lost. Look at this. This will help you. If you look at the world today, people don't feel that they're lost without Christ. People don't even feel they need Christ, just like this sheep. This sheep gave no signal that it needed the shepherd. Oh, shepherd, come and save me. None of that. Didn't know that. Didn't know that it was in danger. It was just walking about doing sheepy kind of a things. And so it is. When you, when you share the gospel, people are not saying, oh, there might be one in a million who says, oh, I've been waiting for this. But most people say, I don't know. Do I need this? Do I need this? But you represent the shepherd 
And he says, yes, this is for the world. I want to bring people back to where they belong. So what, what is the salvation of the sheep, if you wish? It is the sheep is restored back to the shepherd and to the 99. Okay, so we learned some things there uh, and, and how the sheep is restored back to the community. Then we read the next, here's Jesus' defense speech now, to these scribes and Pharisees who were indignant. They were, they were mad. And he says in verse eight, here comes the second part. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors, there it comes again, together saying, rejoice with me. There it comes again. For I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels over, uh, of God over one sinner who repents. And, and so first of all, I want you to describe, I want to describe to you these 10 coins. Because uh, I think what Jesus is referring to is something that you can still see in the Middle East today, especially among the Bedouins, you, you know, that, that women wear a necklace and often it can have eight or 10 or 12 coins. It's of course in, in synchrony so that it looks beautiful and, and they can be very expensive coins in that necklace. And that's the way it's been for thousands of years. And today, even if you go to Jerusalem, you can find uh, replicas Sometimes they will tell you it's the original and it's a replica, but I suppose you could also in an antique, a reputable antique shop, find the, an, an actual uh, Bedouin or Jewish necklace with these coins. I suppose in those days, men didn't put their money in the bank. They put it around their wife's neck, which maybe was, was romantic and beautiful in its own way. And so you can picture now a woman with 10 coins. It means she had the, her necklace and there were 10 coins. And then one coin fell out. And now you understand that if you have 10, there's an order, there's a look to it, and if one is missing, it, it, it's just an empty gaping hole where the one coin was supposed to be. It, it doesn't even look right. And, and so as a, she would be very conscious of that. My, my coin, it, it, I don't know how do I look. I mean, my, 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 there's a coin missing. And, and what, what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, and Jesus is God, he's saying about God here, saying God is like that woman. Ooh, that's a, that shakes people up because first of all, here God is being compared with a woman. <laughs> that, that can, uh, we're used to comparing God with a father, but God with a woman, that, that can stir people up. And, and, and he says, and he says, this woman who's lost the coin, what does she do? She lights a lamp. She lights a lamp and she, and she goes sweeping with a broom. That tells me something powerful. Put this in your note syllabus book. Why is God described as coming with a lamp? You only need a lamp if you're going where it's dark. God goes where it's dark. Sometimes people are like that coin lost where it's dark. It's dark around you mentally, emotionally, in every way. There's darkness around you. But what, what this story says, God goes where it's dark. In your darkest moment, in your darkest sin, in your worst sense of shame and regret and guilt in that 
moment of despair, God is there. And then she takes a broom. Why do you take a broom? Because you're going where it's dirty. Dirty. People say, oh, God is so holy. He's, he's high and holy. He, he wouldn't want to look on sin. Well, why does God take a broom then? He's going where the dirt is. So God isn't afraid of human dirt or depravity. Tell people that. But people don't know that. Religion doesn't tell them that. And I mean the Christian religion, most of it doesn't tell them that either. That God goes where it's dark and dirty. That's good news. That gives hope to people. We learn that here. This is Jesus addressing the religious leaders. And then when she found it, she found the coin, she puts it back. So now you have 10 coins again. She's rejoicing. She tells her friends and neighbors, oh, look what's happened. And then for the second time, Jesus uses the word repentance. Do you know the word repentance is used more in Luke chapter 15 than in any other chapter? Jesus is really talking about repentance. Now, I'm, I'm going to pick that up again, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later on in this module one, but I'm going to pick it up even today. But just notice the word repentance was mentioned about the sheep and uh, about here the lost coin. And so uh, th th then he goes on and tells a third story. And he says, a certain man had two sons, verse 12. Now I realize before I go any further that almost everybody knows this story. But remember now, the reason, normally I wouldn't even read it, I would recap it. But remember, most of us have only known this story as kind of a, we share with the down and outer. We share with that person who is deep in sin. But now we look at it, Jesus is talking to leaders. You are called to leadership. Listen to this leadership lesson from Jesus. Here, here's what he says. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. First of all, this was an insult. Not least in the Middle Eastern culture. I suppose it would be an insult in, in the Western world if a, if a child goes to his father, basically says, Dad, I, I thought you'd be dead by now. But since you're not, can you just give me the inheritance now? Pay, pay me now. And, and, and in the Middle Eastern culture, to, to people who listen to Jesus, this was a grave insult. And met not many days after. And it's amazing, the father went along with it. The father went along with it. You know, that tells you something about God. God will let people make a mess of things. If you insist on making a mess, God's not going to stop you. He's not going to say an angel to stop you. He will keep loving you. His love will be with you always, but he won't stop you. And he says, then he took all the younger son, gathered all together. He journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living or wasteful living. So he's basically saying, Dad, I'm going to go as far away as I can. I don't want to be close. I want to kind of demonstrate with my actions that in relation to wherever my father is, I'm going to be as far gone as possible. That's what Adam did. You see, we have Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 here embedded in this story. That's what Adam, the first Adam said. He said, 
God, I want to hide from you. I want to get away from you. I don't want to be with you. That's what many people today are saying. God, I, I, I don't want, don't talk to me about God. These are the people that we are to persuade and open their eyes for the gospel. The people who are saying, don't talk to me. That's what he's saying. I, I, I don't want to be able to be reached by my dad. And then he says, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. You know, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's not that God caused this person or the Father somehow orchestrated for him to suffer and be in want and have a famine. It just happens. It just happens. The way of the transgressor is hard. So sometimes people are going through a hard time. And we pray, oh, God, take them out of the hard time. Well, the answer is maybe that that hard time has come upon them because they've kinda, they kind of just walked away from God and says, God, I don't care about you. I don't want you. I want to run my own life. I want to invent my own future. I don't want anything to do with God. And now hard times come so that those hard times might waken them up and say, hey, what, what, what did I miss? And, and so we learn that here. Let's keep reading. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. Now, that means he became enslaved under a person in that country. He, he, he was like a slave. He had to give himself, and, and he got some, some, uh, some food, but uh, not, not much. He was still starving here, and he was, came under that, and he was there to feed the swine. Now, again, you know, nothing against pigs. A lot of people like to eat pork, but to the Jewish context, I mean, this, this guy has fallen as low as he can. For Jesus' audience, if he has to feed the swine, he's among them, and you, you, he's hit rock bottom. Next verse. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine eat ate, and no one gave him anything. So, so he, he got to the point he didn't care. You know, people can get so desperate, they just don't care. He said, give me this, give me the pig's food, and no one gave it to him. So here he is, rock bottom. Now, that's in the Jewish context, but in our context, wherever country you're in, rock bottom may mean something different. But people hit, hit rock bottom, and that's what happens. People go their own way, they hit rock bottom. Sooner or later. And, and, and we understand that we don't condemn them, but we said that that happens. Now then it says, but when he came to himself, he said, now, now I'm going to say some things here that's going to be brand new to many of you. You may have heard this story told a thousand times from Luke 15, but many of you have never heard what I'm about to say. So stay with me. Wake up. Uh, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Okay, so it says he came to himself. Okay, stay with me now. People say, oh, that's the turning point. Well, it, it was a turning point in the sense that he one translation says he came to his senses. But here, here's the catch. When you come to yourself, what do you find? You find yourself. When you come to your senses, what do you find? You find your senses. So I don't call this his moment of, of repentance or awakening. 
No, the way I read this, and if we can just step back and look at it, this guy's just smart. He's a survivor. He's got street smart. <laughs> he says, you know what? Wake up, buddy. Come on, wake up and face reality. You're starving. You want to eat the pig's food and you can't even touch that. Things are bad for you. So he says, come on, what, what can I do? I mean, how can I get out of this mess? He says, well, I'm going to go home uh, to my father because even the, the, the lowest paid servants have as much bread as they want. And so I'm perishing with hunger. Am I dumb or what? I'm going to go home and see my father. So in that sense, he came to himself. And he says, I'll go and tell father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. You know, that was no big deal. Pardon me. Everybody in the community knew this young boy had sinned. He has told his father, basically, I wish you were dead. Give me the inheritance now. Can you imagine in the Middle Eastern community to tell the, the chief of the village that, tell the patriarch, if you wish, of the village, I want my stuff now before you die. I can't wait for that to happen. And then waste it. So, so in the sense that he admitted his sin, it was kind of like, yeah, well, what else is new? We know, we know you've sinned. And, and, then, and then he said, here's the, here's the key. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like your hired servant. He's saying, Dad, I, I don't want to be a son. I want to be a servant. I don't want to be restored to where I was. That's too much. I just want to make my way. Hire me. Give me a job. I'll make some of my money and maybe I can pay you back, Dad. Maybe I can make things right for myself. This is so religious. Listen, my dear student, person listening to this, this is how religion thinks. Oh, I've been doing some bad. Maybe I can make it up to God. If I just get another chance, I'll make it up to God. You know, may I, I'll try harder. You know, just give me a chance. Give me, give me a second chance. I'll try to, maybe, you know, maybe God will be pleased with me again. He doesn't understand his father, and so many people don't understand who God is. That's why Jesus is showing it to us here. So let's follow along with that. And he says, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So, so, so ooh, here's something beautiful. So you see, this is not primarily the story about the younger son. It's a story about the father. And the father is just like the shepherd, just like the woman. It's a picture of God. So this is God. This is God towards humankind. God is looking. God has never stopped looking. The son has not been looking towards dad. He wanted to get away as far as he could. But, but the father never stopped looking. And when he saw him, that maybe there was something in the profile, in the shadow, something that was familiar. And the father, oh, I, I want you to see this. He begins to run towards the son. Picture this. Picture this in the Middle Eastern context. The, the village patriarch, the, the, the chief of the village starts running. I mean, the logic would have been your son should be crawling to your feet. He's, he's, he's the one that has humiliated you. Or maybe he should be running in this direction to show his eagerness. But the father runs. 
Jesus is teaching deceived religious people about who God is. God runs to humanity. I could say in one sense, Jesus Christ coming to the cross, Jesus being raised from the dead, there was God running to humanity. There was God saying, humanity, I'm for you. I'll take your shame, I'll take your guilt. God came running to humanity. And then look what happens. This is so helpful. And he fell on his neck and kissed him and hugged him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now notice that the father never answers. He never says, that's right. That's right. You are unworthy. He doesn't make him grovel. See, religion will do that. They said, that's the test if you're really sincere in your repentance. You have to grovel. Let, let's see how, how bad do you really feel about your sin. The father never, never, he doesn't even comment. And he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I want to have a job. But the father said to the servants, he says, verse 22, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So here, well, what happens here is, here, picture this again. Here's this young son. He's going through this well-rehearsed prayer. Oh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Oh, woe me, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. Make, give me a salary. Let me be paid. I'll show you what I can do. And the father ignores him. What does he do? He gives him hugs and kisses. Because the goodness of God brings people to repentance. Not the reprovals and the rebukes of God. The goodness of God brings people to repentance. Remember that. If you want people to come to repentance, and we look at what repentance is a little bit later on. And so the father gives him hugs and kisses. Hugs and kisses. And then the father, but first of all, in, in that moment, that's where the real repentance happens. At some point, the son stops talking stops repeating his rehearsed prayer line. Oh, forgive me. I've sinned. I've been bad. Make me a servant. He stops. Thank God. He stopped talking. And instead, he accepts the hugs and kisses. I say like this. It's in your note. He accepts his acceptance. You know, that's repentance. That's when your mind is changed from thinking, I'm going to pay back. I'm going to earn God's favor. And instead you say, I accept that I'm accepted by God. I accept that I'm loved by God because of Jesus. And in Ephesians 1 says, verse 6, I'm accepted in the beloved. The beloved son is Jesus. And you're accepted in him. So that's the true repentance. And then the father says, let me put it in the right order here. He says, bring out the best robe. <laughs> what do you think was the best robe in the house? It was the father's own robe. It had the smell of the father on it. And so he's dressed in the father's robe. You know, I, I don't have time to preach this. I'm just giving you a little food for thought. You can preach this. Robe 
we are dressed in a robe of righteousness. You are dressed in a garment of salvation. You have a robe of praise. You can take that away whatever way you want to do it. And then it says here, he put a, he put a, what's the next, put a ring on his hand. Now, you know, you know, a ring, of course, we can have a wedding ring, there are different rings. But in those days, there was a ring was often the symbol of a family. There was a family ring. It actually worked a little bit like a credit card today. You go shopping and you hand over the credit card, or you could just show the family insignia and say, put this on our account. Put this on the family tab. Obviously, that ring he had pawned it off in the foreign country. It might be, it wasn't worth much there anyhow, uh, because he was away from the father's house, but now he has the ring. He has the family insignia. Oh, you can, you can take this away, my friend. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has given us access to everything in the name of the family. You come to the Father in the name of Jesus. You have full access. And then he says, what's the next thing? He put sandals on his feet. To be without shoes indicated slavery. Slaves walked barefooted. He's saying, you're not a slave anymore. You are not even a servant. You are my son. You see, the father wasn't interested in being repaid. God is not interested in humanity repaying God for what we have done wrong. God is interested in us accepting that we are part of his family. We are sons and daughters of God. You are accepted in the beloved. And then it says, he made kill the fatted calf. Let us eat and be merry. That means there was celebration. There was rejoicing. There was shouting. I tell you, all of this is Jesus is demolishing the Pharisees' view of God. I mean, they, they didn't think God was anything like this. They, they thought God was someone who will hold you accountable. You know, he, he won't do anything for you fast. You have to prove yourself. And Jesus is absolutely demolishing this view. But then the story continues. And it says, let's read that now. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Now notice it, the older brother... The younger brother, I think we can agree, is a picture of someone who's walked away from God and who is still loved by God. Jesus is showing that to the religious elite. Look at this one who walked away. He's still loved by God. Now, the older brother, <laughs> I would submit, and we'll, you'll see as we read, is a picture of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders. Jesus is actually taking these people who are indignant, who are angry at him, and he's, he's saying, now, there's a person in this story that, that represents you. And so he says, he, he, he heard the music and dancing, and he wasn't happy. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. Isn't that interesting that the older brother who had been home in father's house, when he wants to know what's really going on, he doesn't go to his father. He goes to the servants. That, that shows he didn't really have a good relationship with the Father. He didn't really have a good relationship with God. That's sad. But many people who go to church Sunday after Sunday, they don't feel comfortable with God. They don't feel comfortable with, with the Father. 
they, 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 they may be comfortable with the members in the church. They have some friends, but they're not comfortable with God. They're always a little bit on edge. What's going on? Well, talk to God. Oh, I, I don't know. That seems to, that's where the older brother is at. And the servant said to him, your brother has come home because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. He says, he says your dad is so happy. <laughs> your brother came home and he says about the older brother, he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. See, why was he angry? Was he angry because there was a party of food? I'm sure not. He enjoyed food. You see, he was angry because his younger brother was included. I say like this, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven. Some people just don't want anybody else to be there. You know, I'm sure he wanted to be in the banquet. He just didn't want his younger brother to be there. That was just too much. So he was angry and refused to go in. I, I mean, so, so his father came out. See here again? The norm is broken down. The father, the chief, the patriarch of the village, shouldn't leave his place of prominence in the banquet and go out and talk to the rebellious son. The rebellious son should have got in and talked to his father. But see, the father is a picture of God. God is reaching for people. Tell people this. Even if they're not coming to God, God's going after them. God is reaching for people. God loves people. God doesn't give up on people. People give up on God, but God not on people. There's so much beautiful truth for a leader to understand here. And so he said to his father, verse 29, I, for many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. What a statement. First of all, he's so full of religion. He's so full of himself. He says, he says, I have served you for many years. See, see, that's what religion always says. It talks about itself. I have, I have, I have. This is what, <laughs> part of this, folks, in your ministry, in your work for ministry, and maybe you yourself have been contaminated with this, there's a proneness to talk about ourselves. I prophesied, I prayed, I did this. I'm the one running this ministry. God is using me, 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 I, I, I have served for many years. But why has he been serving for so many years? He just came in from the field here. Why do you think he's out there working? He's out there to gain his father's approval. So, and he doesn't know he's already got it. He doesn't know that he's accepted. He thinks he has to earn his father's approval. And now saying, I've served you for many years. That's how many people feel about church. They go to church, they do things just to earn God's approval. You already have God's approval because of Jesus. And then he says, I, I never transgressed the commandments and, and you never gave me even a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. He's accusing his father saying, you never gave me anything. That's, that's how <laughs> too many Christians feel. God never gave me anything. God never did a thing for me they're waiting for something because they don't know the gospel that God has already given everything. And then he says that I might make merry with my friends. In other words, to this older brother, to have fun meant being with the friends. His father wasn't associated with fun. Many are sadly that way. They think, well, 
what God is necessary, going to my religious building, whether it be a church or mosque or a temple or an altar, whatever it is, it's kind of a necessary duty. Let's go there. Let's get it done. Let's get out of there. We're done with. But it's not fun. It's not a, it's not a party time. It's not a good time. It's, 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 it's like if you got to do it, I guess, just to kind of keep things right with God. He doesn't know his father. He is a picture of a religious, self-righteous person. My, 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 my dear friend listening to this, you have a destiny, a ministry to enlighten people. Enlighten them. God is not like that. The older brother's conception of God, his belief in who God was, is found in, in, in millions and billions of people today of different religions. But that's not who God is. Let's keep reading here. And he said, as soon as this your son, a son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots and killed, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It's right that we should be merry and glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And so he, he's saying here, your, your son has been with harlots. Do you realize that one interesting thing here? The younger brother never admitted to having been with harlots. The father never said that he had been with harlots. The only one that says that the younger brother had been with harlots, prostitutes, is the older brother, which leads to the question, how did he know? I mean, the younger son was in a far off country. Did he have spies over there? Or did he have some particular extra tidbit of information about involvement with prostitutes? Or is this just another sign of how religion is? They like to just kind of embellish the sins of others, kind of almost gloat in the sin. He's been with prostitutes. That's something brand new that's introduced to the story here. And maybe it was true, but nobody else has admitted to it yet. Religion has that tendency to want to pinpoint and, and make it as, as juicy as possible. Beware of the Pharisees' religion. Then it says here, uh, uh, son, everything that I have is yours. Well, that's the gospel. And he says, it's right. It's right that we should be merry and make glad. So it's right. It's, what we're doing is right. The Global Gospel Institute is right. It's, it's right to go to the world and say, God's arms are wide open to you. Come, you are welcome. And, and that which was lost is found, which was dead is alive again. So this is really speaking about the new life in Christ. And, 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 and again, just before I finish this part of it, the word lost has sometimes gotten a bad rap. I've heard people almost angrily say, well, we're reaching the lost. And it's almost like they're mad. But when Jesus is saying lost, there's nothing derogatory or belittling in that. And think about it. For something to be lost, for someone to be lost for God, that person must be very precious. It would be like if you were a bride on your wedding day and you lost your ring. Or you were the husband, I suppose, who was supposed to put you lost the ring. 
Or if you lost your telephone, you know, telephones today, we, we have all of our information on our telephone. If you lost your telephone, you, 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 I have to find it, I have to find it. If you, you know, if you lost a little pen or something, some little big pen that you bought for 50 cents, uh, you, you say, well, I'm not going to go back and look for that. I'll get another one. It'd be cheaper anyhow than wasting time going back there. But, but if you lost your phone, that might be a big thing to you. Well, if God says someone is lost, that means that person is very precious to God. So when you speak and use the word reaching the lost, it means reaching the very precious ones. And according to Jesus in Luke 15, that's the heart of our Heavenly Father.